I used to get up in the night and tiptoe through our enormous apartment and go to the fridge and try and unscrew the bottle of schnapps really quietly because I just thought, oh, God, if he hears me, then it's going to be a whole thing about why are you waking up, waking up in the night to slug out of some peach schnapps. So I just remember standing on that um, on that floor, that tile floor in this in ridiculously enormous kitchen uh, and the air con, because obviously it was Dubai. So you had to have air con going the whole time. So it was actually freezing, although outside it was just hotter than hell. Standing shivering next to my fridge, really just trying to quietly open the lid of the schnapps, taking a few glugs and then going back to sleep. Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, Tribe Leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober podcast. My name is Janet Goron. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we help people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last five years, we've helped hundreds of people to do just that. We created Tribe Sober because we believe it's really, really hard to change your drinking alone. So at Tribe Sober, we're all about community. And each week we feature a community voice just to give you a flavor of the awesomeness of our tribe. Here's a lady from one of our WhatsApp groups. Following World Without Wine for a few years before I was ready and um, able to start to disentangle um, what drinking had become in my life. I had experienced different alcohol experiments with uh, Annie Grace and had done some work with the Sober Sis group in the States, but I'd kept coming back to what now is called Tribe Sober, really called to the energy of the group. I know I had chosen in my best when Janet put on an entire workshop uh, in July, which ended up being uh, offered as a personal and then it turned into a full workshop and it was a beautiful experience. It was really the first time that my mind shifted from I need to take a break or I need to do a reset or I need to try this for my health really into the change of perspective of what it's been for me. So with that awareness also comes a beautiful community of like-minded individuals all at different places in their journey without judgment and total acceptance but with accountability and motivation and encouragement. Um, always sending out notes and messages to one another, um, creating a true community of support, as well as offering hypnotherapy, recovery coaching. Lynette's been amazing, Belinda's been amazing, and I look forward to trying the root therapy cause that is also offered through this 
beautiful family. I know I'm early in this journey for myself, but I know I'm in the right place with the right people and doing the right things. And that feels simply beautiful. Thank you, Janet, for having the courage to step out and do this work and to create the community to let so many of us follow in these amazing footsteps and begin to create a new life, uh, as you lovingly say, thriving. Much love and thank you. So there you heard a mention of our workshops. We've actually run more than 60 workshops during the last five years. And now that they're on Zoom, we're able to welcome people from all over the world. We've just posted a couple of new workshop dates on the website. So if you'd like to know more about our workshops, then you'll find all the info under the Our Services menu on tribesober.com. Now, my guest this week is a household name here in South Africa. She's a journalist, a radio presenter, and an author. I've had the pleasure of being on her Cape Talk show a couple of times, so I was happy to turn the tables on Sarah Jane King and talk about her extraordinary backstory as well as her recovery. I began by asking Sarah Jane to introduce herself. I live these days in the southern suburbs in Cape Town uh, and I work at Cape Talk Radio, which is where I've been for the last, it'll be five years actually, coming up this October. live with my little family. My little girl will be two in November. I can't believe it. And yeah, that's that's me. I think before we get stuck into your personal recovery story, I think we'll just have to touch on your amazing backstory. <laughs> There'll be people listening to this like me that picked up uh, killing Caroline and, and couldn't put it down till it was over. It was absolutely riveting. I'll put the details in the show notes so people can, can grab that. And it's on Kindle as well these days. Mm. So if there's anybody out there, because we go, we have a lot of listeners in America and we even have a listener in Peru, so they might not know your backstory. <laughs> so I know it's a big ask because it's such a long and complex and moving story, but can you just try and give us a, a sense of your, your extraordinary beginnings in life? Yeah, sure. I've learned to do the abridged version quite well by now. Um, so I was born in um, in Johannesburg in 1980, um, aging myself horribly. And my biological mother is from the UK. She's a, a white woman from the UK. And my biological father is a petty guy from Limpopo originally um, and lived in lives now in Johannesburg. Um, and my they met when my biological mother, who had been studying in England, met a white South African guy who had also who'd, who'd gone to the UK to study. They met and fell in love and decided that they would go back to he would go back to South Africa. She would go with him uh, and they would build a life for themselves. I still have to question why anybody in the late 70s would want to uh, build a life for themselves in South Africa, given what was going on in the country at the time. But I think that kind of speaks to who they both are. Um, and so they began working at his parents' hotel in, in Joburg, and she was the head housekeeper, and he was doing kind of marketing and that sort of thing. And my biological father, my dad, um, was the head chef. And my biological mother and my biological dad started this illicit relationship, which, of course, because of apartheid, would have been illegal at the time, or was illegal at the time. And so they had this kind of clandestine affair, uh, which I know a lot more about now, 
because I know my dad. And so, but for a very long time, I, I had a certain idea of what that, how long that affair was and what it looked like. And now I've kind of, I know a little bit more about it. The long and the short of it is that she got pregnant, had me, obviously had been having the secretive affair, had now married her boyfriend, her white boyfriend, her white South African boyfriend. Um, and when I was born for the first three weeks of my life, she tried to pass me off as his child, her husband's child. And then it became painfully obvious that clearly I was not this man's child. Uh, and then they had to quickly devise a plan to get rid of me because they wouldn't have been allowed to keep me. They would have been arrested, probably. My dad, probably worse than arrested. It just would have been a really problematic situation to stay in South Africa. She had the choice, of course. She could have just left and gone back to England, but didn't. And so she took me to England with her husband. They had me adopted in the UK to the people that I call mum and dad, a white couple who lived in lived in Surrey. And then they flew back to South Africa. And obviously you have to, you can't just leave the country with a baby and then not come back with it. So they told their friends and family that Caroline, as they'd named me, Caroline had died overseas. And their whole premise for going to the United Kingdom was the baby's very sick. She needs treatment. That treatment can only be obtained at Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital. And so that was the kind of story for getting me out of the country. Uh, and so in everyone's mind in South Africa, I died. Except, of course, I didn't die. I grew up in the UK with my very white, but very lovely, completely mad family. Uh, and then 28 years later, I returned to South Africa. And 35 years later, I wrote a book about it and exposed everyone horribly. <laughs> I must know, uh, when did you find out this story? You know, the way they said you were dead. I, um, really? Um, no, maybe maybe not the dead part. The dead part I found out in a letter that I found when I was about 13 or 14. I was quite a sort of precocious and very nosy teenager and was constantly kind of rifling through my mother's drawers to try, I don't know, to find what, I don't quite know. And then I found this letter from my biological mother kind of detailing the exact circumstances of that. I mean, I think that was the the age at which I knew. I can't imagine my parents would have told me the minutiae of all of that any younger, but it all kind of becomes a bit of a blur. But obviously at some point I found out. And so, yeah, so that was that was the story. That was the story. And how did you feel when you found those papers in your mother's drawers that you were looking for? I think, I mean, I think probably on a quite a deep level, I was probably completely traumatised. But I think I romanticised it because this letter was a really lovely letter from my biological mother. And she'd written it when I was probably about a year old and she'd then sent it. What I'm able to do now, as much as I, over the years, I've had an enormous amount of anger for her a around her and what she did and who she is. I am able to look back, particularly now I've had a child of my own. I'm able to look back and appreciate the trauma of what it would have meant for her to give up a baby. I think it left her completely deranged, to be quite honest. I think, I don't think it's possible that you have a baby and then give that baby away and you are okay. I just don't believe that's, and that I'm able to use that now and my experience of having a child as an explanation for her completely abhorrent and revolting behavior in subsequent years and her treatment of me, which I could never get my head around. And the only the only explanation is, and I, I, I don't believe people are born evil. And I believe that the people who are evil on this earth, they're very, very few who genuinely are just evil, nasty pieces of work. I think she was probably so traumatized and didn't get any help that it's just compounded and she's just become this, but she's just become this very damaged, damaged individual. The letter that she wrote me was 
her, I think, still probably in an awful lot of grief and still attached to this baby, which you probably would be. And it was quite an affectionate, quite an affectionate letter. It was quite a considered letter by stark comparison to letters that she would, a letter or two that she would later write to me in my 20s. And so I think I romanticised really the situation. I kind of romanticised the apartheid and I, not romanticised the apartheid, but I, I romanticised this this relationship with her and my dad and, oh, but she was in such a difficult situation. And, and again, I've had a daughter, you know, I've got my own child now and there's no way on earth that I would have ever in a million years given up my baby. I would have just got on a flight and gone to the UK and raised my kid. So... Of course. I mean, yeah, it seems really obvious now, but but again, and I try part of my recovery, and we can touch, we'll touch on that. Part of my recovery has been realizing that you know, expectation is the mother of all resentment. I can't have expectations on a woman that I don't really know who was twenty two at the time, who did something. Yeah, we probably all would have done different things. Um, but yeah, to answer your original question, <laughs> eight hours ago, um, shock <laughs> probably shock was probably how I how I reacted to that. Of course. Uh, Um, and romanticizing in a way and then then probably finding ways and means to not face the reality of what my existence was you're listening to a podcast from tribe sober so let's talk about that a bit is that where the booze started coming in no not at all no the the first thing the first thing, the first substance for me was food. Before that, it had been, uh, I used to, because it was all about escapism. So I'd been an avid reader um, and I used to bury myself in books and people would go, oh, that's amazing. And, you know, my parents would say, oh, she reads just constantly. I was reading to, to escape completely. And because I wasn't, Yes, I enjoyed reading and I, and I do love reading, but it really was. I mean, you would have had to, you had to drag a book out of my hands. It was and looking back now, it was almost as if I, the same fear that I would have if I couldn't later binge or purge or drink or use or whatever, if I didn't have those substances, I felt the same if you, if I didn't have a book with me, which is, that's really yeah, interesting. Yeah. I kind of only just had that realisation. But yeah, um, mm. and, and interestingly, the booze didn't come in as a problem until I was about 24. And the oh, reason, wow. yeah. Yeah. And the reason for that was because my adoptive brother, Adam, was an alcoholic. And so I was terrified of alcohol. Alcohol just sort of decimated our family. My brother was an, was a raging alcoholic from the age of 13. Raging alcoholic. Oh, and, um, yeah. and seeing... That's not to say I didn't drink. I did. I did what all teenagers do. And I, and I kind of, you know, had the, the odd illicit drink and maybe would get can we swear? Pissed every now and again. Um, but yeah. not, not like I, I wasn't drinking alcoholically. I didn't need to because I was already knee deep in oh. the eating disorder. I was already in the books. That wasn't what I needed it for at that point. So yeah, so my my first thing was my first kind of behavioral addiction that you would probably look at and go, oh, that's not good, would be the eating disorder. Um, cutting. Really, alcohol was the tail end. Alcohol was the tail end. And right. so my my drinking really got bad when I had to start putting all the other stuff down. When I started realizing that I had a problem with other stuff, then right. I needed something to, yeah. ha- you know, and because, yeah. I'd, because I'd never had a problem with alcohol, it seemed okay to me that I was 
the way that I was drinking was the way that I was drinking. And how bad did it get that you, you felt you needed to go to rehab? Well, again, the drinking wasn't what took me to rehab. So my my eating disorder had always had been around from probably about 12. And that would fluctuate between compulsive eating and restricting, compulsive eating, restricting, binging, purging. And I did the whole gamut of that for years and years. It got really, really bad when I first went to university, really bad. And then when I was 24, I moved to Dubai. It was while I was in Dubai that the drinking got bad. Ironically, because everyone always says, oh, but Dubai's a dry, <laughs> dry state. It isn't a dry state. And also, um, I was an alcoholic. So I found it wherever I, you know, I just made sure that I could get it. So what would happen was, and, and, and what was happening with me at the time was, I was in a relationship with a guy, a very sweet guy, but troubled. We were both very troubled. We were hugely codependent. He was a recovering heroin addict um, and a not recovering porn addict. Um, I was deeply unhappy in this job that I had in Dubai. I was completely estranged from reality. Dubai is not a place where anyone with no. any kind of mental health issue or addiction should be. It's really full on. And so I was trying to manage this job, manage porn brain, as I used to call him, which is really nasty because he's actually a <laughs> lovely, lovely man. Deal with all of that that was going on and this job and, and the eating disorder, which at that point was was anorexia. What would happen was we, we lived in this ridiculous apartment. It was massive. And there were just two of us, two crazy, just... <laughs> just moving around this apartment. And he worked in Kuwait in the week, just like an hour flight from Dubai. And the only way that I, I didn't have an alcohol license. That's what you needed to have if you wanted to drink at home in Dubai. So the only way that I would be able to have alcohol at home was him coming through duty free. And of course there was a limit on that. And that's when I realized mm, things aren't quite right here because I would go and fetch him on a Thursday evening <laughs> and wait at the airport in anticipation. And then it dawned on me once, I'm not waiting in anticipation to see him. I'm waiting in anticipation for my booze to come through. And God forbid if he hadn't bought my full allocation. And I remember now I was allowed two bottles of red, two bottles of wine and, uh, and a spirit. And, it, and he used to get me peach schnapps. A classy broad, and um, and so I would, I would be sort of waiting in anticipation, and and if I saw him sort of coming through the gate, not looking laden with my booze, there were times when I just wanted to get back in the car and think, oh fuck off, You've, <laughs> I'm not interested. Find your own way home, and oh, then shame. yeah, I know shame, and then uh, I used so I used to in, sort of annihilate the wine. As soon as as soon as he got home, and then the peach snaps, I would. <laughs> I remember this really clearly, and this was kind of the tail end of of a really bad couple of years, and that's really how long my my alcoholic drinking was. And again, it wasn't even about quantity; it was about why and how. I used to get up in the night and tiptoe through our enormous apartment and go to the fridge and try and unscrew the bottle of schnapps really quietly because I just thought, oh, God, if he hears me, then it's going to be a whole thing about why are you waking up, waking up in the night to slug out of some peach schnapps. So I just remember standing on that, um, on that floor, that tile floor in this in ridiculously enormous kitchen uh, and the air con, because obviously it was Dubai, so you had to have air con going the whole time. So it was actually freezing, although outside it was just hotter than hell. 
outside and just standing shivering next to my fridge, really just trying to quietly open the lid of the schnapps, taking a few glugs and then going back to sleep. And then um, the other thing was, and I'd always, I'd never been somebody who did drink driving. That was, I, I was really fastidious about that. In England, it's just not, you know, it's not like it is in South Africa. I know, People I'm just, the same. I couldn't I believe it when believe I came back to I South Africa. No, I just was absolutely <laughs> appalled. Came came back to South Africa and everyone just kind of like has a few tins and then drives home like it's nothing. And I mean, in England, that's, you know, frowned upon. In Dubai, completely illegal. You're not allowed to drink, with, drive with anything in your system. And I was so terrified of going to jail. I mean, I never, I never, ever. But in, in a way that in England a few years prior, I would have just said, oh, well, I'll have one and then I'll drive home. And then I would have gone home and maybe had a couple more. But again, not alcoholically drinking. In Dubai, things change when I, the number of times that I had to wake up in the morning and go and get my car because there's no, because I was bladdered because there was no way that I was going to go out and have a drink. And I just, I just loved, I just, I can still, and I try, I don't think about it too often. I don't think about drinking very often at all, really, because it's been quite a while since I've had a drink. But if I think back to that feeling, oh God, it was brilliant. (laughs) I shouldn't say that, should I? I mean, it was brilliant in the moment. (laughs) I agree. (laughs) It was brilliant in the moment. Um, Oh God. And then the hangovers, the hangovers just got really shit like just lying on the floor thinking I can't do this and it started what I say it started to affect my work I mean not by comparison of, of some of my other friends in recovery who really just you know were abs- what what kind of work were you doing Sarah so I was so I was doing what I do now I was yeah I was a I was a journalist um I was on radio in Dubai um and, and I loved it I loved my job but I was so unhappy this was it was a culmination of just not dealing with my staff I'd been in I'd been in a 12 step fellowship but not but for food not I didn't think I was an alcoholic I did not think I was an alcoholic at all I didn't because to me an alcoholic was somebody like my brother who by then had, had he, he killed himself actually when I was oh, 19 Somebody, an alcoholic was somebody like my brother who got absolutely shit-faced all the time, could not just have one drink, had a, 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 and was a menace and was abusive and was loud and a violent drunk. And a, that's what an alcoholic was to me. I think for many people, that's what an alcoholic is. So that's why, you know, people like us ladies that are drinking a bottle of wine every night, a bit more at weekends, et cetera. We, we don't think we're like that. You know, we couldn't possibly be an alcoholic. Yeah. But you you take our booze away and then that's a different story. We and that was the thing. And that, and that was the thing. For me, the, the taking of the booze away, it, it was, you know, like, and I told the story about, you know, him coming through the airport and me wanting. If he hadn't done that, yes, I would be pissed off. But for me, I'm such an addict that, Something else would have, I would have done something else. I'm such a cross addict. So it was never, it was never, oh, there's no booze. And that in and of itself is going to drive me spare because there was always six other addictions waiting in the wings to pick up from where the other one had left off. I just did like a massive dance from one to the other. And and even when I got into recovery from substances, that still played out. That still played out with codependence and, ver- and, and other stuff. So, um, 
Yeah, it was th- those. So your your objective your objective was to numb yourself. One hundred percent. It doesn't really matter what it is, you know, whether it's food or a bit of cutting or yeah, alcohol. A bit of cutting. As yeah. long as it numbs. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. that was complete. It was complete escapism. It was complete numbing. It was complete. I, I don't the fear of feeling and yet all I felt I felt all the time I felt everything I felt every tiny little yeah, thing yeah. And, and and also by that point so I was like 24 25 by that point I hadn't been diagnosed with any mental health issue at that point but I knew something wasn't right aside from the addict stuff I knew something wasn't right but I you know again mental health issues were something that other people had they weren't things that nice girls from Surrey had mm. so when did you decide that you were going to go to rehab well, a bit of rehab in South Africa. Yeah. So what happened was my mum, my mum had come out from the UK. My my mum and I, we have a better relationship these days. Um, it's been difficult though. We have we have a difficult relationship, and we work on it. And it's difficult. And it, this was one of the times when it was very difficult. It was at a difficult point. My mum had come out. I was living with porn brain. <laughs> Shame. I got oh I got fired from my job. That's right. That's what happened. I got fired from my job, and I was so indignant. What for? Um, I mean, officially for going over the head of our senior news editor and running a story that shouldn't they didn't want run. That was the official line. The real line was that I was just a fucking pain in the ass. I was just I was just a complete pain in the ass. Um, I was bloody good at my job, but I was that that sort of does that becomes irrelevant when you're just a constant pain in someone's ass, which I was. I was mouthy, I was angry, I was I was just I was so unhappy and it was just coming out as I often wonder what people who I've got friends from those days in Dubai who who were very, very good friends to me and very, very dear friends, and they still are. And they would they saw the behind the scenes, Sarah Jane. They saw that actually that wasn't really who I was. Um, they saw me kind of broken and stuff, and they saw me outside of the work environment. But I often wonder, like my boss at that time, what they would say about me. Like if if we went back and said, what was Sarah Jane like? They'd probably just be like, she was a total dick. She was just an absolute nightmare. Uh, because I, I was, I was so angry. I was in so much pain. I was so unhappy. I didn't know who I was, where I, I just didn't, I just didn't. So my mom had come out and I remember we'd we'd gone to the mall. We'd gone to the mall, her, me and, and himself. And we got into a fight, probably because I was being objectionable again. And I left them in the mall. I just, I thought I can't do this anymore. I was at breaking point. I'd lost my job. I was, it was just awful. And I just got in the car and I wrote about this in the book and it was a really poignant part, thing for me in the book because it was so real. I got in the car and I drove down Shekhzad Road in Dubai, which is like the main, this big, long road. And it's just, it was like rush hour and rush hour in Dubai is like just next level. And I just remember driving down this road thinking, I'm just going to put my foot down and just drive into the car in front and just that's going to be it because I just I'm so god I never get emotional talking about that but I am now I just thought I can't do this anymore I'm so unhappy somehow ended back ended up back at the ridiculously large apartment Um, the thing about this apartment I just want to say the thing about this apartment was we had we had just bought a house in the UK before about three weeks before I came home one day and said to Porn Brain we're moving to Dubai and he went what are you talking about and I went we're moving to Dubai and he went I don't want to and I went I don't you're going to do as you're told and so we moved to Dubai and we couldn't afford it 
um, and we couldn't find anyone to rent our house in the UK. So we were paying a bond, a, a bond that we couldn't really afford on a house in the UK. And then we were also paying um, extortionate rent on this property in, in um, Dubai because rent is just really expensive in Dubai. Our apartment, because we had no money, our apartment was so barely furnished. It was so bizarre. It, it, like the rooms were huge, but we had like one sofa and uh, two chairs around this really tiny dining room it was just really funny uh, it wasn't actually it was quite tragic got back to the apartment my mum came back with with him they were furious because I'd left them and while they had been traveling back in the car himself who had who at that point was I think five years clean from from heroin addiction and had been to rehab they'd had a kind of discussion where they were like go and get some help <laughs> so my mum who throws who, my mum whose solution to stuff is to kind of throw money at it offered gleefully to pay um and I thought cool I can do that and a friend of mine um in the 12-step eating disorder group that I was in had been to South Africa for treatment and she said it's much much cheaper than than like going back to the UK which I didn't want to do so I was like okay fine and I ended up going to a treatment center in um in Joburg, and that was it. Left my life in Dubai behind, completely, literally. Tell, tell, tell us that bit um, where you landed in the plane in Joburg and you felt like you'd come home. Yeah, that was quite quite bizarre. I mean, it might just have been because I was pissed because that was the last time that I had a drink. <laughs> I I, um, I didn't oh, realise that. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. It was. It was quite profound. But I, I my last drink was above. Doha as as the plane took off because I'd flown from Dubai to Doha, Doha to Joburg and I didn't realise it then but it was my last drink. My last drink was a glass of red wine in one of those awful plastic cups above, yeah, somewhere above the, the, the gulf and as we landed in Joburg it was like the most beautiful sunset and I just, the wheels kind of touched down. I'd never been back to South Africa. I'd never, since I left at six weeks old as a baby and as the wheels touched down I just had this sense of coming home or being being where I needed to be, belonging. Uh, I don't have belonging. Yeah. Being where I needed to be, something just suddenly felt right in a way that had never, yeah. ever felt right before, ever. Yeah. And yeah. that, I think, sparked something. That Well, it did. It sparked a long, a long kind of the next stage of my life in terms of what was going to happen. And that was my last drink. That was my last drink as well all those thousands of feet up in the air. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. If you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just head on over to tribesober.com and hit the membership tab. That's www.tribesober.com. So I think you spent about a year in treatment, didn't you? On yeah, and off. I've got <laughs> quite a long time. My inheritance. I mean, honestly, that is it. There's <laughs> nothing left. Um, yeah, I went for I went for 28 days. I was going to go for 28 days. Yeah. I thought I'm going to go, and then I'm going to come back, and then it's going to be great. And da, 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 da. and then 10 months later, the sh- you know a shell of a person. I tentatively walked out of the of the rehab. I ended up in there for 10 months. And why, why did you keep extending your stay? Was it their advice? I was or your... Janet. I was absolutely yeah. mad as a cut snake. I was absolutely, yeah, I was crazier than a box of frogs. And, um, and also because the more stuff that was revealed to me, like, for example, you're a drug addict and an alcoholic and a codependent and a lot of kind of not so much sex really, but love addiction stuff going on and, and all of that. I just and all the time that 
my mum, my dear old mum, was kind of willing to pay for this, I just thought, yeah, I I need to be here. I realised how mad I was, actually, yeah. And was it, would you say it's mainly the talking that, that began to heal you, just talking and talking rather than reading and numbing it all out? I guess. I, I guess it was. I think... Um, it was connecting. It was the connecting yes, of course. with fellow people who were also, which I'd done a little bit of, but not not really, because I still wanted to have all of that stuff over there. I didn't. I wasn't ready to kind of let go of some of the stuff that, like these days, doesn't play a part in my life, kind of thing. And and I, um, you have to be ready, don't you? You have to be. That that's one of the things that that that's the thing about recovery is that it can't be forced onto a person you've got to be ready for it um and and I and in that sense about and that around that I was ready for it it was the connecting there's a guy whose name I can't remember um who talks about addiction and the opposite of addiction not being sobriety but being connection I said that in a I was doing some I was doing some like thing the other day and I said that and again, I must find out his name. And all these people went. Oh, I know, I know. Do you know his name? Who is it? Yeah. Who is Johann it? Hari. Johann Hari. Johann well, Hari. I'm sorry if if you're listening, Johan, which I'm sure you are, because you're gonna you're a massive fan of Tribe Sober, obviously. Um, I said this. I said this in a in a interview thing the other day, and all these people were kind of nodding and applauding, and oh, she's so wise. She's so wise. And I was like, it's not me. <laughs> I didn't say it. I just can't remember the name of the bloke who did say it. So sorry, Johan. I've just, I've taken full credit for your um, for your excellence. But it was that, Janet. It was the connection. It was the it yeah. was the connection yeah. that and and being real and and also being. I had a really weird experience that I won't go into because you'll need to read it. And if you want to find out what it was, read the book. But I my first therapist in Johannesburg, who actually died last year. Oh, let me not. Let, I have to be very careful because you mustn't speak ill of the dead. But she was quite hectic, and she ended up having an affair with one of the clients in the rehab. That's that's, and, and it's relevant because she was the first person. She was like a mother to me in those first few weeks, despite what she then went on to do, which was unforgivable and completely um, unethical. She she offered me a she mothered me, and and what I also then realised was while in treatment was how messed up my relationship was with my mom, my adoptive mom. And then also started looking at my biological, that primal wound, the rejection, and suddenly things all started falling into place. Cause I just thought I'm a total fuck up. I'm a total, f-. and that's kind of the message that I was getting from my mom. And I don't think she meant it in that way, but it was very much like, that's your stuff over there that you need to go and deal with. She she was in an awful lot of denial, and still is. I don't think she's going to be listening to this podcast around having any role to play, um, and and not that recovery or or addiction is about pointing fingers and blaming, um, but there was an awful lot of stuff. There was an awful lot of stuff there. Th- this therapist opened up a space for me, a motherly space that I had been lacking since birth. And although she then went on to go and completely destroy that trust, she had opened up something that allowed me to start sharing. And now, as I think has become entirely evident in this podcast, I'm a massive oversharer. But it's, it's I, I am so all about 
truth and authenticity. And I don't always get it right 100% of the time. But what I've realized is the truth, the truth will set you free. Absolutely, that 100%. But the truth will save my life because talk about all the cliches, but they're so true. Secrets keep you sick and they do. They do keep you sick and shame keeps you sick and shame and secrets feed off one another. And I realized also that I'd been carrying somebody else's shame and been carrying carrying someone else's secret for so long to be like so written off that half, you know, a whole world of people believe you to be dead. That is hectic. Like that's really hectic. And I'm not sure, you know, my biological mother's got a lot of anger towards me she's got a lot of anger towards me for existing I think um she's got a lot of misplaced anger a lot of misplaced shame I could not continue to carry her shame anymore and be her dirty little secret because that was the stuff that was the stuff that was that was that was making me or you know was was manifesting as I need to escape I need to do this it was not my shame to carry and so now although I don't always do recovery perfectly who does I don't know anyone who does and if you are out there you're a liar I I really strive for truth and authenticity because it saves my yeah, life. Yeah, it sounds to me, Sarah Jane, as, as if, you know, the therapist, uh, good that she was to start with, uh, she she started giving you the space to make some kind of sense of your own exactly. story. You know, yeah. it's, it's not you that's a crazy person. You've yeah. had a, a very unusual start in life and you were beginning to to make sense of it and understand a little bit more how you feel. And and I guess it's a matter of, of feeling those feelings, isn't it? Rather than, yeah. than running away from them all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So so when you wrote the book, was it a cathartic experience? You know, did you feel very emotional? Did it come easily? It's funny you say that. So I'm so I'm in the process of writing my my second book now. And I was actually writing before we start, before we before we started doing this podcast, I was just doing my my little bit for the day, and this one is cathartic, and it's almost like I'm doing it for catharsis. When I wrote Killing Caroline, it's almost like cheat. It's almost like a cheats a cheats way of doing step work without having to do it. Um, when I wrote Killing Caroline, I didn't write it for that. I thought what I'm going to do is write a book telling my story because that happened to me that thing, and now I'm going to write about it. I didn't realize that it was a thing that was very much still happening and in fact most of my processing and growth and trauma even has come since the book came out so I would start writing and I was like telling the story and then I was forced to kind of confront a lot of the reality that I had I was forced to unromanticize it I was I was saying you know I'd romanticize the story and then I was forced to actually go it wasn't like that um, and and a lot of very painful things have happened to you and you need to look at those. And so I would write stuff and then I would literally go and kind of cry on my therapist's floor and just be like, this is so fucked. How could they do this? How could they do this? Da, da, da. And what's interesting now is that, you know, it's been, book came out in 2017. And so it's been four years since the book came out. And I, I am so proud of that book. Like, first of all, I think it's brilliantly written, if I may say so myself. But I'm proud of myself. <laughs> I'm proud of myself for getting through it because if I look back actually at what was happening to me while I was writing, there were a lot of very, very painful realizations, like really horrific, that have that I've that I've needed an awful lot of therapy 
subsequent to that to yeah. to process and and get through and I, I'm probably not there a hundred percent still the book gave me a gift really of of it being a kind of thing of if you think you're over this you are delusional this is really just yeah, the beginning yeah. writing that book Sarah it, uh, rather than healing and catharsism it was um it was more like stirring the pot wasn't it yeah necessarily uh, uh, and, and, but because you did that it led you to more therapy and, and more healing that way. Ask you what your second book's about, the current one. <laughs> I go more I go more into the mental health and the addiction stuff. I sort of touched on it in in Killing Caroline, but I, I want to go more into it because it's been a massive, massive part of my life. And I also want to go into it to kind of go full circle to what we were talking about at, at the beginning, is that I want people to read the book. You know, my publisher wrote a book. Um, which is probably one of the, you know, it's it's a leading book on 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 addiction and 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 mem- all memoirs on addiction and and it was this it's a down and it's brilliant and it's a down and dirty heroin addict in Hillbrow in Johannesburg, you know, giving it must both, be smacked. It's smacked. It's smacked. <laughs> sorry, hello, Melinda Ferguson. Um, and and you know, and that was that was just an incredible book. But but for me, that wasn't my experience. That was not my experience of of addiction. And and I just sometimes I speak to people and, and they say, oh, I read that bit in your in Killing Caroline about the, you know, you're taking the lid off the schnapps bottle and whatever. And that sounds like me because I was never, you know, full down drunk and couldn't go to work and didn't do this. And I was like, yeah, I am the quintessential functioning addict. I am. I am that. That's who I am. And I wanted to write that so that people relate. For me, it's all about relating. If I can get if one person can relate to that and be like, just because I'm not doing X, Y, and Z doesn't mean that I don't need help and doesn't mean that I'm not in pain. I always think that there's like a line, you know, and at one end you've got the non-drinker and at the other end you've got the homeless man in the park, you know, that, or a bit like your brother. Yeah. And But in the middle, you know, there's millions and millions and millions of functioning alcoholics and, and they're in huge ma- amounts of pain. But yeah. because they don't think think they're alcoholics they don't get help yeah so uh it's i think it's you know if you're writing about functioning alcoholics it's, it's very i'm writing about functioning mental people you know i'm <laughs> and, and i say yeah. that a bit tangent but i'm right i'm writing about i'm writing about most people in the world is what i've come to realize actually janet is that i'm writing about <laughs> yes. there are so few people who are just cruising along like i'm all right jack it's not the case it's just absolutely not and i and i just I think the last year and a half has also shone with the pandemic has shone a spotlight oh. on this thing of like, I need for people to realize that it's okay to say I'm not okay. And like, it's really okay because yeah. I, you know, I am somebody who has spent an awful lot of time in psychiatric units and that's okay. I've, I've completely, I'm completely unashamed, uh, not ashamed of unashamed, not ashamed of that stuff. Um, because it's my reality It is that is what keeps me, normal and and my mental health and my addiction is is a is a part of who I am it is a part of who I am and and the other part is that I'm a mother and I'm a you know I'm a very driven career person I'm a daughter I'm all these other things but if I don't pay attention to to the addict stuff and the mental health stuff there's nothing if I don't have recovery and recovery looks different for everyone I and I appreciate that but if I don't have that I don't have any of the other stuff I don't it's the foundation isn't it yeah for for the other stuff yeah 
<laughs> tell us that lovely story, Sarah Jane, about um, how you were promoting your book and then it led to you meeting your, your father. <laughs> yeah. So I, my friend Koketsu Sachane had been standing in for Eusebius MacKaiser and he said, let's, let's talk about your book. So I was like, okay, cool. His, uh, my show used to come, come on after Koketsu's. And um, so we, we were doing this interview and then we went to an ad break and he said, I know you want to find your dad. Now, I had tried to find my dad. I tried. I'd hired four private investigators. Nobody could find him. And I'd just kind of given up. And my biological mother had once said in a letter, she wrote me a letter. She replied to a letter that I'd written her when I was about 20 saying, this is who I am and hello and whatever. And she wrote back this dreadful letter. And, and in that letter, she said, there's no hope of you ever, there's no hope of you ever finding out more about him than you know now. Oh, so you know what? Sometimes, and this is when my recovery isn't perfect, I feel like I, in finding him, it sort of rubbed her nose in that, which isn't a very nice recovery thing to do. Yeah, but sometimes well, it, I do feel The way that. she put it. Yeah. <laughs> the way she put it, it was a challenge, wasn't it? Yeah. It was just, it was all for her own, it was for her own, that was for her own needs and whatever. But so she said that. So I just thought, oh God, I'm never going to find this person. And I tried and and also moving back to South Africa and, and it became more important for me to find him and my siblings. I knew I had siblings. I didn't know how many, but I knew I had, I knew I had one, I thought I had one brother. So Koketsu said during the ad break, let's give your dad's name. And I was like, and I'd been so reluctant to do that. When I went to, when I tried to, con, when I had contacted my biological mother and my, and my biological brother, it caused an awful lot of upheaval in their lives not that that's my problem that's entirely on her shoulders but it, that still happened and I didn't want to do that to another family again even though it wasn't my responsibility it was not this wasn't I hadn't created this I just didn't want to do that if there were was a wife or siblings or I just didn't anyway Coqueta just convinced me just to, to give the name so I gave his name on air and then they like the whole country kind of galvanized, it seemed, in 24 hours. And literally within 24 hours, somebody sent me a message saying, could this be your dad and his name, his full name and telephone number? And I got my partner to phone the number. And they were kind of doing this back and forth. And my dad was like, who is this? And it was a whole thing. And I was thinking, we're, we're, we're flogging a dead horse here. We're barking up the wrong tree. It's not him. And then just as we were about to, he was about to put the phone down. He said, my dad said, I did work there, but it was a really long time ago. And I just remember like collapsing onto the bed and being like, oh my God, oh my God. And I grabbed the phone and I just said, did you did you have a relationship with a with a with a woman in in the late eight in the early seventies? Letter, and he said what? And I said sex. Did you have sex with a white woman? And he went, uh, uh, and I said I'm your daughter. And I said, are you? Did you have a relationship with this woman? And he said yes. Um, and then a week later, I was in Joburg meeting him. And um, what was that like when you first saw him and? He saw you. I mean, it was, was just, it? you know, it was really emotional. It was really, he came yeah. with my um, oldest brother who looks just like me. And, I, and that blew my mind because I was like, oh my God, there are people who look like me. This is amazing. Um, and we cried and he hugged me and he said, my daughter, my daughter. And I really just felt like 
I couldn't believe this moment. And I've actually got it on video. I'm, I made sure that people were filming it so that if I ever like get dementia or anything, it's there. Um, so I can, I can see it again, but yeah, it was, it was really, it was an amazing moment. And he's, he's really cool. My dad. Haven't, haven't you taken some of his name now in yours? Yes. The Makwala. Yes. Yes. I'm now Sarah Jane Makwala King. It's beautiful. It just sounds My daughter also, this is (laughs) is an exclusive because I never talk about my daughter really. And I I don't give her name either, but his name is also part of her name. Oh, he must be thrilled. He is. Every Saturday afternoon, we open up our Tribe Sober Zoom Cafe. It's a safe space where our members can connect, check in, and just shoot the breeze about alcohol-free living. If you'd like to be a guest at the cafe one Saturday, just drop us an email at Janet at TribeSober.com. That's Janet, J-A-N-E-T, at TribeSober.com, and we'll send you an invitation. I wanted to ask you... You know, I think of you these days, and I mean, you look, you look amazing. And to me, you're just this um, person with a great career and everything's uh, going for you. But you've got your family. You've got an, a sense of identity as a black South African, good career. You enjoy being in this country. Are you beginning to feel a sense of peace compared with how you used to feel? I know everything's a journey these days, but are you still very much on that journey? Or I am very much on that journey. I'm very much on that journey. Um, Identity-wise, a lot more settled, but still right. very much on a journey because because being being in being in South Africa brings up different stuff. Being a black South African who looks the way that I do and sounds the way that I do brings up stuff. Being a black South African who is unable to speak to her family in the language that they all speak to each other in is difficult. Which is? Is that Kosa? Um, what language? Um, I mean, everything. My dad speaks 11 languages. So, I mean, but, but, but as a family, yes, yes, it's a journey, but it's not, it's not something the identity stuff doesn't, kind of cripple me as much as it used to um but right. there's still a lot of work to be done so sarah jane if there's people listening to this possibly that do have big struggles with alcohol and or drugs and they just don't know you know how to start where to start they don't even understand whether there's any benefits to sobriety what, what would you say to them to encourage them to do something it's about finding the right space for you. That's something else that I've come to realise in recovery is that people find recovery in, in different ways and recovery looks like things to different things to different people and that's okay. Um, for me, it was about finding a, a safe space to even just begin that conversation and not be kind of held to it. For me, that space initially obviously was being in rehab and then and, and then the path that I then took and that I found very helpful for the first few years of my recovery was in was in 12-step meetings. It's it's a really difficult one because I think you only you're only ready when you're ready. And there's there's little things that for me were I, I don't know if you've ever read the book um Rachel's Holiday by Marion Keys. I read that book. Yeah. There's a second one coming out now. It's like catching up on Rachel Ooh. 20 years later. Um, I read that book five years before I even thought about 
going into re- treatment or recovery, but something struck a nerve with me on that, that I, the relating that I got to this character who was, you know, getting pissed all yeah. the time and was deeply unhappy and whatever. Yeah, I think it's just about about voicing it and whether it's whether it's voicing it in private therapy, whether it's voicing it in in you know places like Tribe Sober that are built for this for, for you to have that space, whether it's going to meetings, whatever it is, even if it's journaling to yourself, it's about like I, and I said this before, it's about the truth, isn't it? It's about yeah, it's about moving toward truth and not denial and not um and not secrets and not shame yeah I'm, i must tell you this uh, i don't know if you've heard of the tempest it's a uh, sobriety group in the states it's huge and they, they did a study they asked uh, i think it was about 500 people in recovery they asked them how long did it take them from that first moment when they thought oh you know I've really got a problem with whatever mm. to the time when you reached out for help and the average time was 11 and a half years I totally believe that it's long isn't it yeah me too I, I was trying to cut down for 10 years so uh, it's very interesting isn't it so there's probably people listening to this and the seeds are being planted and, and nothing will happen for a few years and but that's it's, okay though Janet I think for me that. that's okay yeah. you know I've got so many people close to me my best friend's also in recovery it took him a really really long time many 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 tries um and my partner as well, not that I'm going to tell their stories, but, you know, it took me a while also um, to really mm. make make a commitment to, to, to go into recovery. But that's not to say that the time between that first spark and that first seed being planted and the time between the decision, whether it's 11 and a half years, whether it's 20 years, whether it's two months, those there are moments in that period of time, I think, where other seeds are being planted and growth can still happen. It's not wasted time at all. Well, thank you, Sarah Jane. That was absolutely riveting. Let's try and pick out a few highlights. As you heard from Sarah Jane, her birth was the result of an illegal affair between a white British woman and a black South African man during apartheid. She shares her extraordinary story in her memoir, Killing Caroline. I'll put a link to the book in the show notes. I really recommend it. Now, as a child, Sarah Jane used to read voraciously as a form of escape. And then as a teenager, she went on to develop eating disorders and cussing, all in effort to escape her feelings and to numb her pain. Her alcohol use began to get out of control when she moved to Dubai at the age of 24. She never really acknowledged it was a problem. After all, her brother was a severe alcoholic and she was not at all like him. She was very much a functioning alcoholic. We talked about alcoholism being on a spectrum. At one end, the non-drinker. At the other end, the homeless man in the park. Most of us, of course, are in between those two extremes. The danger, of course, is that many of us just resist getting help. We're not an alcoholic, so we're fine. So we go on drinking and we become more and more dependent. Sarah Jane got fired from her job as a journalist in Dubai for being so difficult. She felt so angry, so unhappy, and one day she was even tempted to crash her car while she was driving along a busy road. Her mother and partner recognised she was in trouble and they got her into rehab. She was only supposed to stay for 28 days, but she actually stayed for 10 months. 
She was learning, she was digging deep, and she was becoming aware that she needed to do the work if she was going to recover. Sarah Jane believes that recovery can't be forced on you. You have to be ready. And she was ready. It was connecting with the other people in rehab that healed her. She so appreciates the deep value of sharing. Sarah Jane realized that she'd been carrying her birth mother's secret and shame for a long time, a secret that was not even hers to carry. That had been the root of all her addictions and her unhappiness. So these days she strives for truth and authenticity. She believes that we can't hang on to secrets and shame and that only the truth will set us free. We see this at our workshops. When we ask people to share their stories, you can see the relief in their faces as they tell their stories about how unhappy alcohol's been making them, stories they may never have said out loud before. We agreed that connection is the opposite of addiction. Scientifically proved by the Rat Park experiment, which is featured in Johan Hari's fabulous TED Talk, it's called Everything You Thought You Knew About Addiction Is Wrong. I'll put the link in the show notes. Sarah Jane feels that recovery is about finding a space, a space where you can feel safe and share your feelings. That space could be tribe sober or it could be AA. The great thing about modern life is there's so many alternatives out there. We talked about the recent study by The Tempest, which showed that the average time between people realizing that they had a problem and getting help was actually 11 years. Sarah Jane agreed that sounded about right, but that we should remember that seeds can still be sown and growth will take place during those years. If you're listening to this and you're thinking about reaching out, then don't wait for 11 years. Just go to tribesober.com and check us out. You can grab a freebie, do a challenge, join our community or do a workshop. Just get that journey started. Last week, I introduced a new section to the podcast. I'm just opening up my phone and going to read the first member WhatsApp message that inspires me. Here's one from Trisha, a sober springer from Australia who was struggling to get started, struggling just to notch up a couple of days of sobriety. She sounded really low, but she got so much encouragement from the community. And her response to them was, You guys are amazing. I can feel so much love coming at me from all over the world. My target is now just seven days. This time next week, I will have gone a full week without drinking for the first time in over 20 years. I will check in daily. Thank you so much. So good luck to you, Tricia. And if you feel in need of some love and encouragement to get you started on this life-changing journey, then just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. So that's it from me. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to follow us and share the podcast and I'll be back next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard. It takes courage and grit and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain, and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. 
It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.